Welcome to Parent to Parent, real-life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Chrissy. And this is Beth Ann. And today we are speaking with Dr. Stephanie Diaz-Morel, the founder and president of Reboot and Recovery, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing education, prevention, treatment, and research on technology-based addictions. We're going to talk today about technology, screens, video games, and how to use these in a positive way, and also how to know if our kids or us as parents might be dependent on them. Dr. Diaz-Morel, welcome to our show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So we are very excited uh, about the opportunity to talk with you today because certainly these are topics that are appearing in the popular press and the media. And as we talk about mental health issues, um, sort of this, uh, you know, how we're doing during the the pandemic and a little bit post-pandemic around technology. I think this is a very timely and interesting topic for for our listeners. Um, I wonder if we could start with you giving us a little bit of background information on how you personally came into studying this field and the work that you're currently doing. Yes. Well, over 10 years ago, uh, the work began. Uh, I had been researching and learning about behavioral addictions to better serve the clients I was working with. And at the time, I was working in a residential treatment facility for adults, youth, and families experiencing substance use disorders. And we did not know much about addiction. Well, we didn't know as much as we know now at the time. But I did start to notice that many of the clients who were successfully abstaining from using substances were beginning to exhibit some problematic behaviors that look similar to the problematic behaviors they had with substance use, but it was relating to excessive smartphone use or general technology use, like the internet. Um, So after seeing these problems with technology overuse growing both in this professional setting I started to see it growing in my uh, personal life with friends and family members. And so I began to speak openly with many individuals about this. And what happened was that I got a lot of responses from people who had been seeing and experiencing similar issues, right? Turned into this kind of pattern. So they had shared with me that they experienced losses in their life due to technology overuse and addiction, despite all of um, the resources and information that we had available for those who were seeking help with an addiction to a substance, there was little to no readily available information about how to deal with internet addictions or technology-based addictions. So at that point, it was clear to me that there was a need in the community to help these individuals and families understand what they're experiencing, how it's affecting them, how it's affecting their families 
and their loved ones and what can be done to help. So using all the knowledge that I'd gathered over the years, I developed a proposal and brought that to a group of over 500 service providers, educators, clinicians, and community organizers that we would meet with quarterly um, and discussed if they saw a need for education, prevention, treatment, and research on technology-based addictions. Mm. Uh, so let me paint a picture for you and travel back in time. This was in 2009. Mm. Uh, and many of them uh, said they didn't see the need, <laughs> but many of them also said that they did see a need in our community and beyond. So due to my lived experiences um, with this, I was driven to help fill that need and supported by a lot of these other providers and uh, worked towards doing so in 2013. As a result of that, Reboot and Recover was founded and we founded the organization with the hope that by sharing and pr producing anecdotal and research evidence-based information with individuals, with families and communities, that we can help them to find their balance in a technology-driven world. And here we are nearly nine years after the founding of the company, continuing the work. And I think that's the thing where um, I would say, you know, why I'm so excited for this conversation. And I think many listeners will be excited for it as well is because I would say among parents, when we're asking what topics they want to hear about most, it's always technology, screens, video games. And I think it's because we all sort of have this love-hate relationship with our screens and technology. And also for parents, it's difficult. And, you know, speaking also for myself, because we get nervous. Like, you see the effect that screens have on your kids. However, they're unavoidable in life. You need to do schoolwork on them. It's centers in pre-K and kindergarten classrooms. It's you know, kind of ever present. We all use our phones all of the time for socialization, work, email, doctor's appointments. It's, you know, it's very hard to have the, I mean, I guess you could if someone wanted to, but it's it would be pretty hard to eliminate that from your life. Um, and we also know that, you know, as much as we would maybe want to hold back on it, how do we get that balance there between, having this thing that we need to use, but also at the same time, we're also seeing it can make our kids real cranky. It can make them feel like a pull to them. I, I think it's pretty um, easy to, if you're walking around in the world, it's pretty easy to see and there's not much question that people are very dependent on their phones. If we all, I hate to say, if we all look up from our homes and lo look around as we're walking around, you see people looking at their phones as they're walking their dog, as they're pushing their kids on the swing, as they're sitting in a waiting room at a doctor's office. We're kind of always have this natural pull. So I guess that would be maybe a good place to start would be, can you explain to us why are we so tied to these screens and these smartphones? So there are a number of factors that make it so difficult to put away our devices and to be in the moment. Uh, some reasons have to do with learned behavior and societal expectations or norms. So if others are looking at their phones mm -hmm. in a waiting room, right? This is now mm -hmm. something that uh, you might mimic. Um, and for younger children, uh, they might not understand the reason why, but they 
now also want to be looking at a tablet, right? Um, but one that is most universally experienced and I would like to highlight has to do with how our brains are wired, right? People often do ask me, how can a behavior uh, like you know, social media use, using your smartphone or video gaming, how can that become an addiction? Mm. And the answer to that involves understanding many facets of human behavior that would turn a leisure and fun activity into something that negatively impacts that person's life. But in part, neuroscience can provide information on how this occurs with us, so why we can't put it down, right? So when we engage in activities that are pleasurable, so if we're looking at our phones and we're scrolling through uh, TikTok or other social medias and watching videos of um, cute babies or you know funny puppies, um, that's gonna be something pleasurable. It'll bring us happiness. Well, our brains are gonna receive a dose of a chemical uh, known as a neurotransmitter. And these neurotransmitters are signals um, that tell our body this feels good or can also say this feels exciting mm. and engaging in video game playing, for example, um, or, you know, smartphone usage can be a pleasurable activity. And we know the neurotransmitters of serotonin and dopamine are released when we engage in these pleasurable activities. Now, much smartphone use, including a lot of social media use as well, involves repetition over time of certain activities mm -hmm. and that might not stay pleasurable right so if we're watching the same videos over and over again um, or if we're looking at the same content over over again we're playing the same game over and over again the repetition might make it not as pleasurable and um, that's where the changes come into play so having variation in this or having to engage in the behavior longer so that we get that new rush of serotonin of dopamine. Um, and as our brains become flooded with serotonin or dopamine, a threshold can be reached, right? So we reach a limit to where we need more. Mm -hmm. And this can put us in what's known as a dopamine deficit state. Mm -hmm. So we're feeling now less fulfilled, less happy or satisfied than we were before using our phones, you know, excessively or engaging this behavior. Uh -huh. And as a result, now we need to do this activity more to get the same dopamine dosages we desire. So we have to engage in it more likely. So our brains are literally telling us they're wired to say, let's engage in this activity more. Let's make it more pleasurable. Let's spend more time connected to these devices because that initial rush of dopamine and of serotonin that we had, it felt good. And I want more of that. So you basically describe how people build a tolerance to substances. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's basically, as I'm sitting here, I'm like, it's basically the same thing. But I guess the question is, the, or the difference I should say is, with substances, not everyone's reward pathway and dopamine receptors will light up so much that they say, okay, I had a sip of alcohol. Wow, that was really good. I want to do that again. Some people will, but not everyone. But do you find that, I don't want to say necessarily in comparison, but do you find that the way that smartphones operate, that it's much more likely that a greater portion of the population will have that, let me do this again? Because it's almost like we're building a tolerance 
And that's where you're getting that pull for it to come back. And the excitement piece too, because it's like, well, let me open it up and see. What am I going to find today? I don't really know who posted what or what story yeah. is going to be there or funny meme. Or if you're on, you know, TikTok, what dance or thing am I going to see? So th- I think that's such a key piece to it too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also just like to note that, you know, this is what we also see with a neurotypical brain. So it's important to consider how everything we just went over can differ Mm. for those who are neurodiverse. So for any children or adults that have uh, disorders like uh, autism spectrum disorder or attention deficit hyperactive disorder, Mm. because the neuroscientific, um, the neuroscience will impact, uh, it'll vary on them. So absolutely, um, there are a lot of parallels when it comes to our brain's reaction to smartphone usage in particular behaviors such as social media usage or behaviors that are going to increase our serotonin and dopamine intakes. Um, And mixed with that or coupled with that is psychological impacts that um, you know a lot of the ways in which these technologies are designed are are, are to engage us to keep coming back, mm-hmm. right? To spend more time engaged with their um, their products because they use a lot of intermittent reinforcement or basic uh, basic understanding of applied behavior analysis to make sure that we would want to come back and to stay longer on the smartphone. So it's, uh, I would say coupled between those two things is a very big reason why we can't let go. I think Chrissy, I was just thinking this uh, when, when Dr. Diaz Morel was speaking about the assignment you have with your students. Yes. So when they are not to use their devices mm-hmm. and the, the stress mm-hmm. and uncomfortable this that they report to you after, I don't even think it's very long. Is it a week? I I don't, maybe not even. So they have to give up something of importance. It's a, it's an entry level program that has a part on substance use disorder in it um, that I would teach. And it, yeah, they would have to give up something of importance to them to see what it would be like to live as if you were a person that was um, possibly in recovery or trying to get in recovery from substance use disorder. And so you have to give up a behavior or a thing of importance to you and then journal about it. Explain, you know, how you felt. Did you replace it with something else? All of those things. And so, and I have to say, like, even along those parallels are, um, and some people would choose to give up social media. And they were like, I don't know where anybody is. I don't know what people are doing. I can't remember anyone's birthday. Like very, you know, basic day-to-day things, but also just the FOMO was there. But then also after you got over that initial, you almost could basically call quote unquote a withdrawal period. Mm -hmm. They felt that they had, you know, more time to be productive, more time to, you know, clean my apartment, do my schoolwork, sleeping better. Like there's a lot of positives. And it's even one of those things where I question this myself and I'm like, do I really need to be on Instagram at all. Like, is this, is this, how is this benefiting my life? Maybe I should just like take a weekend off. And then I think about it and I don't want to do that. So <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, because I'm just like, well, what's the harm? It's like the state of denial, talking, rationalizing it with myself. But then I'm like, I really should do it and see what the difference would be and just be reflective on that. Cause mm-hmm. it's not like, there's no monetary value to it for me. It's purely an entertainment type of thing. 
But then it's like, when are you using it? Because prior to this, I never, before I started using Instagram, after I had my second kid and I was on the couch nursing this kid nonstop, people were like, oh, look at fun houses and the beach and pictures and things on Instagram. And then that is when my love story with it began. <laughs> and now I don't want to break <laughs> up. So true. Even though I think but, it would be good for me. So I was thinking that today when I went to a, a doctor's appointment, I was waiting and I have always, I take a book. Because I'm, I'm not going to look at my phone. But it's very interesting how I take my little book out of my backpack uh-huh. and everyone else is on their phone waiting. Uh-huh. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to yeah. read my book. But you have to be intentional so, about it. Right. Yeah. I was trying to. So I think that this takes us to, you know, we're talking about, you know, how as adults we struggle with this behavior. With our uh, developed brains. We struggle with our, with our fully developed brains. Developed brains. We really want to focus on what happens to, to children. And as a parent whose children are young adults, I, I skipped this phase. These things didn't exist. We were flip phone family for my children in high school. Uh, so, you know, I think we really want to talk a little bit about the concern and what we're reading in the, in the literature about the brain of young children um, who are beginning these devices quite early, you know, even preschoolish before that early, and, and what we're beginning to see now and perhaps what might be long-term concerns about uh, developing brains and screens. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, there are a lot of different impacts of what we're currently seeing on the uh, increased amount of screen usage with children. Because, you know, if we think back to the 80s, we do have some longitudinal research, so some long-term research that shows us what impact screen time in general can have um, on children and developing brains. And what some of the historical research has shown us is that children who spent more time um, on front of a television, in front of a screen, especially in key ages zero to five, were learning less words per day than children who did not spend as much time in front of a screen. So the threshold was about three hours or more of screen time a day. So for the children who were spending three hours or more of screen time a day, they learned between five to seven words less than the children who were spending less than three hours of screen time a day. Um, And of course, so what we're thinking, what is some of the replacement? Mm -hmm. If the children are not sitting in front of a screen, even though they might be hearing words when they're in front of a screen, they might be, you know, visually stimulated and seeing colors and movement, the way that their brain is observing this information and replicating it into the world is not translating into the development of language, mm. right? And we know that their the visual cortex, their primary motor cortex, their primary sensory cortex is all hyperactive at this age. And that's part why, uh, in part why time with caregivers and parents um, playing interacting with the world is so important at this age. So now in place of that, we have children who are excessively, um, you know, using tablets and often it can be because maybe the parents are giving that tool to them, thinking that it will help them get to where they need to be developmentally. But the research is just showing us that that's not the case 
Um, if you would, you know, want your child to get to where they need to be developmentally and with how this technology will impact their brain, then co-viewing or engaging your child and explaining things to them can be more helpful than just, you know, giving them the device and uh, allowing them to watch or listen without that assistance from a parent or caregiver to explain what their brains are processing. That's, I think that's a, there's a very interesting points in, um, uh, in your response to that question, because I think that most of the time, just like uh, perhaps, you know, I, my parenting age group would have used TV, mm-hmm. uh, you know, handing off the device so that you can do whatever it is that you're trying to get finished. It's you're less likely to be sitting and engaging with them. So it's a substitution, mm-hmm. right? It's something that you're, you know, it's quiet and, Hopefully they're learning something and then you could be off doing your thing. So I probably would think that it would be um, maybe a small percentage of folks that would actually sit and, you know, have conversations about what's happening. I mean, on that screen. And I don't know, Chrissy, I mean, you're in that age group. So, I mean, we see that all the time at restaurants where I would hand my kids crayons and a book while we waited for the server. I don't see crayons and books anywhere. I'm going to see phones and I'm going to see those small tablet things and you know the kids are doing their thing and the parents are doing their thing and then the server comes over then we go back to our devices and then our food comes on and sometimes or sometimes we don't get off our phone mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. well right? that's it's like the ever-present thing that's been culturally now accepted because even like prepping you know for well Back to the first thing you said, Bethann, too, is just like using it as a substitute or as something so you can like using it as a tool so you can get other things done. And, you know, thinking of the pandemic, like, I mean, I'm not going to say that I didn't use screens to help me, you know, do work. And when we're all home together and it was really difficult and and I'm sure there's many. uh, But then. And I, and I think we're going to get to this, but also it's like, then how do you really back in too? Yeah, and I know we're going to exactly. talk about that later. Yeah. I think that when we start focusing on the concerns um, regarding the developing brain and, and this excess screen time from a very, as you indicated, even as early as between the ages of zero and five, what can happen with simply a TV, let alone these, these devices, what guidelines? Um, and I know we've looked at groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups that have said, you know, there's some recommendations and guidelines for children at different ages, perhaps with different devices from very young and, of course, as they get a little bit older. So what might be some of these general um, guidelines for screen use uh, with children based on age? Right. So, you know, many uh, preschool age children are using smartphones and tablets longer than the recommended time. And the recommended time is no more than two hours of high quality content viewership on a screen per day. And, you know, high quality means that they are engaging in screen time that is educational, that is nonviolent, and again, that is being co-viewed with a parent or a caregiver. And it's true, a lot of parents aren't aware of this caveat. Um, It is a recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics 
but pediatricians, I think, have so much on their plate. They don't often tell new parents, um, you know, or parents of any age children about these recommendations. And so unless, um, you know, they're looking for it or are aware of it, then it's not general knowledge. But what we do know um, from some recent research to know, you know, a little bit in larger quantity how this is affecting individuals, um, from a study that was just published in 2020, research showed that of 346 parent and children pairs, roughly about 35% of preschool-aged children had their own devices. So they had a tablet or a smartphone, um, and they said they were using it for about an average of nearly two hours a day. So they're about within that guideline. But among the children in the group, 40.5% used their device for less than an hour a day and 26.5% used it for one to two hours a day, 12% for two to three hours, 6% for three to four hours, oh and 15% for four or more hours. And when we compared, you know, this, of course, was taken directly from the tablets. They just took the screen time sure. meter usage and had that information there. And but when they compared what they had recorded on the tablets to what parents' estimates were, oh, roughly about one-third of the parents underestimated the time that their kids were spending on the device. Even if the parents had, you know, put some limits in place or tried to find ways to um, manage the screen time of the child, they were still underestimating the amount of time their kids mm. were spending on these devices. And those who were um, typically underestimating were doing so by about an hour or more. Oh. I find this underestimation of the time, this lost time to be very interesting because because uh, I've been you know personally trying to less time, mm -hmm. you know, don't pick up the phone in every commercial mm -hmm. break that I'm something I'm watching or whatever it might be. And so I think I'm doing quite well and I might be really impressed with myself. And you know how you get your weekly screen time <laughs> stats? Yes. And it'll be, I'll be like, well, that just can't be like, that is not right. Did your because, screen activity report diss you? Yes, be like, no, no, Bethany. No, no. I was like, <laughs> you're supposed to be rewarding me. And I get quite happy when it say, oh, your screen time is down 13% this week, but yet it'll say, the average might have been four hours. Yeah. Like I'm like, uh -huh. We're like so what I am I doing? To, what am I doing? doing? Where did those so four I, hours of my life go? Right. Uh -huh. And so that, that is, that has been my concern is this underestimation of whatever you call it, time wasted, lost, burned mm -hmm. on these devices. And unless you see that, I, I just don't think you feel it for yeah. some reason. It's Absolutely. Just that insidious. I don't think you, I don't think you feel it. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to children, I mean, we talked about zero to five in particular, but really um, there are so many important stages of development for a child's brain and opportunities for parents to not just help their children develop healthily, but to form that parent-child attachment, which we know is also so important for later in life outcomes um, and, you know, just to help them to process their emotions and uh, to be able to 
um, have more understanding about themselves and the world and their identity development and their long-term planning and their abstract thinking, right? All of this happens with conversations with your primary caregivers. And it, usually when you're both sitting on a couch, looking at a screen, the conversation doesn't tend to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And is there a difference between just saying, okay, you can watch a show on regular TV and having that handheld tablet device that maybe you might be watching a show on or you might be playing a game on an app or something. Is there a difference of what happens um, or how it affects you differently? Or the child, I should say, how it affects the child differently. Sure. Uh, The medium of the device doesn't necessarily impact the child differently per se what the where the impact is seen is in the parent or the caregiver's ability to supervise right so to ensure that what the child is watching is age appropriate it's falling within all these parameters that we're talking about right it's um, developmentally appropriate age appropriate that the content is something that the parent would approve of mm-hmm. um, And if the device is, you know, a small cell phone that maybe it's not as visible for the parent or the caregiver, then that can cause some, you know, difficulty for them to um, make sure that it's appropriate versus if it's on the TV and the parent and caregiver can easily Mm -hmm. see it and hear what's going on. Um, then that provides for some better, you know, supervision. And also if it's on uh, a device that others can hear and see from easily together, it allows an opportunity for the parent and caregiver to process what the child is viewing, right? So if they're watching uh, something that is funny and the child laughs, right? And you say, oh yes, that was funny. Um, You know, what made you laugh about that? If you want to express further and expand upon emotional intelligence and understanding just so they begin to identify what was humorous in the situation or if they're sad, you know, Oh yes, that was sad. You know, what made you sad about that? Right. Again, having that conversation. And if it's a game and they're older children, you know, taking an interest in the game as well and saying, you know, what, well, what's the purpose of this game? Which character are you? If there's several characters on the screen and really starting to understand a bit more about, Um, your child's interest in the content that they're viewing or engaging with, as well as uh, having them understand what motivates them to engage in this content, what motivates them to keep playing the video game. Um, And by doing so, you can also even find some parallels to some physical world or real world experiences, right? Oh, in the video game, you just got some points for picking up, um, you know, some things around, the area that you were in. Well, you know, if you are at home and you can pick up your clothes and clean your room, then you also get some points if you have like a chore chart, things like that, right? And so we're finding some parallels again and kind of helping children to develop some skills that they might also be learning in these virtual settings, applying it to the physical world um, and ensuring that, you know, Mm -hmm. that skill translation is there and and also um, maybe even gamifying it, right? Making it a bit more fun. Right. right. So, and I ask this selfishly because I have a kid in third grade who is asking to get games. He was just allowed to get his first like app that we don't, we don't have like a gaming console or anything like that, but 
I do see this like pull to it. Like, can I do this? And we set a timer to have limits around it. But then when that timer goes off, it's like just one more round, just five more minutes, which I guess is the same with TV and those types of things too. But you know, um, what, how are video games, are they different than, you know, another subcategory within this? Um, and what do we need to know as if you're a person, you know, kind of like me just beginning this journey in allowing kids to play them? Right. Uh, so for video games, I would say that it's a bit different, right. Um, than viewing, because there is an extra element of engagement in video games and it can be a bit more immersive. So instead of this secondary experience for a lot of children who, if they're watching, let's say like YouTube kids and they're watching other kids play mm -hmm. with, with uh, toys and they can co-play, um, it's more of a, a, a secondary experience with video games. It can be a bit more immersive because now they are the lead character, right? They have their own role in the game, um, whether it's more action-based or more puzzle-based and video games are also more complex because there are various genres of video games and every genre of video game um, will tell you a bit about some of the outcomes of the game right so if it's like an action adventure game well then the expectation is that this game will focus on action adventure and you can guarantee there'll probably be some exploration uh, which is good for children right exploring things testing limits if it's a puzzle game well then the game is going to be a bit mentally challenging at times and some levels will be easier than others but they will build upon previous skills um, so with video games, finding a game that is age appropriate is very important. Uh, just as you would evaluate a toy to ensure that it's age appropriate and safe, the same practice can be applied when trying to find an age appropriate video game for children. And uh, just like um, you know, other kinds of internet content. Sometimes children hear about content that they want to see, but that isn't necessarily age appropriate. Same thing could go for video games, right? So as parents, that's where we implement the limits um, and find some alternatives so that we can ensure that they are engaging in um, online content that is age appropriate and safe. And I was thinking, Chrissy, when you were talk, asking about the, the video games, um, and there certainly has been research over the years that has looked at violence in video games and behavior in children. And we've recently, I believe the Surgeon General report within the last six months or so that was looking at social media and technology and mental health. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, behaviors such as disordered eating um, and anxiety and depression and self-image and uh, many of the components of mental health that have negatively been influenced by social media and perhaps it was exacerbated during the pandemic because there was so much more time devoted to devices. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, the impact that social media has um, on developing minds and then also some of these mental health concerns that we've been, um, that the research has been you know, being able to clarify that a little bit more for us. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, social media um, is a bit of a mixed bag. And the main um, one of the main reasons that I say that is that there is so much content 
that it gets to a point where it's difficult for social media developers um, or uh, those who monitor the new content from flagging things that might be appropriate or inappropriate. Um, there's a lot of subjective understanding of what would be considered violent versus nonviolent, like cartoon violence, um, you know, versus direct human violence. And so um, that is something that young children in particular being uh, exposed to can cause a lot of negative impacts on them. Um, most social media apps do require the users to be at least 13 years old, but we do have some recent survey that uh, research that shows parents say about 50% of the children ages 10 to 12 years old and 33% of children between ages seven to nine years old are using social media apps. Um, and children younger than 11 years old who use social media, in particular um, social media that is more focused on imagery like Instagram and Snapchat, research has found that they're more likely to have these problematic digital internet behaviors mm. um, like visiting sites that parents wouldn't approve of mm -hmm. um, and having friends that they have only mm. ever known online, mm -hmm. which of course, as we know, you know, they can be being catfished, mm -hmm. um, right? It could also be a predator. Um, and again, social media sites do a great job of monitoring and mitigating these efforts, but there is more content than they can sure. handle at times. So that is a risk. It's like a bottomless um, well. There's just so many account. Would you say it's so many, there's just so much. It's just like the wild west of what's out there. Right. Um, so are like the top apps that kids, maybe school age kids, I guess you would say, um, are, is it like TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram? Yes, yes. It's mainly Instagram and TikTok right now. Okay. Um, Snapchat has lost a bit of its popularity, mm -hmm. but still still exists. Okay. Um, and, you know, also when using Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok, children are also at a greater risk of taking part in or being a victim of what's known as online toxicity, which is also a form of cyberbullying or online harassment. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of social norms that exist in the physical world are blurred when children mm -hmm. are communicating and interacting with others through a screen and that, you know, bystander bias that we tend to see in uh, social settings or in group settings really is amplified in an online setting mm. and because there are no immediate repercussions online mm -hmm. let's say if your child you know were either a victim or taking part in mm -hmm. online toxicity or cyberbullying no one would look at them a certain way right they're just staring at a screen perhaps they're going to be reading some comments in reply to what they said mm -hmm. but they also have the opportunity of you know unsubscribing or getting rid of the thread or not going back and reviewing what others thoughts are about what has been mm -hmm. said so they can just commit the cyberbullying they can you know say it in the moment they get that maybe elation from it or whatever feeling 
um, they, they might receive from that and then walk away without any immediate repercussions like you might see if they were to say that out loud in a room mm-hmm. to others. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, do, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bethany. No, I was going to say, so it's really interesting how that online, what they're experiencing online, these social media, if it's Instagram or TikTok, but then what that looks like in real life. So it's, it's, it's almost like you do have different personas. I mean, you can't certainly be mm-hmm. one way behind these screens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you'd really see what, what it's creating when they're in real life. Right. Situations. Right. Exactly. And there's also the stress that comes from social media usage. So a lot of um, school-aged children feel pressure yes. to use social uh-huh. media because their friends their, their friends in a physical setting, right? In class or, um, you know, friends that they've known are using TikTok um, or they're asking them to be part of a TikTok trend or a video or to, you know, take photos for them a certain way to post on Instagram because they're seeking that social validation, which, you know, many of us have. It's a, it's a part of uh, human behavior. However, the social, the um, internal or external validation that previously we saw it through more um, historical forms mm-hmm. are now uh, being sought after online through likes and views and being turned into an opportunity for um, fandom yes. um, or even just kind of an expectation where this is how, you know, popularity is achieved. And now popularity isn't just, oh, I'm winning because I'm popular. It's also this might lead to, uh, you know, monetary income. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just so much that we're seeing as far as the expectation for, mm-hmm. for youth to use social media to engage in it, the impact it's having on them. You know, we've seen uh, that it also increased irritability and anxiety, a lack of self-esteem because a lot of these pictures that have, you know, filters mm-hmm. and been photoshopped and really curated to look a certain way. Now when, um, you know, children are looking in the mirror and they don't look that way, this can also impact their self-esteem um, and, and a lot of emotions that come with that. So there's a lot to be aware of when it comes to you know, social media use with children. I just, you know, I have to say that I feel bad for myself and parents that are in a position that we have this extra layer of stuff to manage and parent with. And I just am so grateful for my, that I grew up, I just, that I grew up in an age that smartphones didn't exist. Like I graduated high school in 2001. Like I got to live as an adolescent and make mistakes and say things that I wish I never said. And I never had that, you know, overshadowing fear that someone was going to whip out a cell phone and start taking a video of me or take a picture of me in an Mm -hmm. outfit that was horrible and that it would somehow circulate and end up somewhere else. And I just... I'm, it's, I'm kind of sad that that isn't an, a childhood that I can offer to my kids unless we move far away and live in the middle of nowhere and don't communicate with anybody. Like, you know what I mean? Just because mm-hmm. it's just, that is, it's a lot of pressure. And it's this also this, you know, opportunity to live multiple lives in multiple places because now the internet can provide multiple locations for you to have all of these different personas and lives and things. It's just... 
Dr. Diaz Morel, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although if I can offer an altering perspective oh, yes, as well. Please. Give us the know, hope. Give us all the hope, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you know, social media is kind of the new, um, you know, the new three-way phone call. All mm-hmm. right. Right. Back in the eighties or nineties still, we would have, you know, phone calls mm-hmm. with several friends and have discussions that way. So it does offer an opportunity for some positive socialization, uh, for children who have friends or family that have moved away or there aren't able to communicate with, um, or even see in close physical contact, especially during the pandemic, it offered an opportunity for them to continue a bit of that connection and that conversation, right? Um, And an easy way to do so. And there is a lot of content on social media that can help to promote Mm -hmm. positive emotions. It can help to explore, right? You can see what things, what cultures, what the world looks like 5,000 miles away Um, You can learn a new language. You can uh, see things that you might not have been exposed to in other ways that fuel your interest in Mm -hmm. science and mathematics and traveling and technology. Um, And so there is a lot of positivity that's also available Mm -hmm. through social media. I think the key is just to um, ensure that what you're following aligns with that, right? And it's easy. It's just like, I, I think of it like a diet, right? So am I going to have some potato chips for lunch and that's it? Or am I going to have some protein um, or a veggie protein and some salad um, and I'll have a small cupcake for dessert, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the balanced diet. So when it comes to content, it can be something similar. Am I going to just you know, sit here and watch content that doesn't nurture me back? Is right. it just going to be all potato chips? Or am I going to include some motivational quotes and an opportunity for learning something new today, something that's going to increase my brain elasticity? Am I going to reach out mm-hmm. to a grandparent or a cousin or a friend who I haven't spoken to in a while and just check in and say, hey, I just want to see how you're doing, thinking of you. Um, you know, I love that's your picture, something like that. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about red flags and also how to manage and balance all of our media and screen usage. We'll be right back. Hey, Carmen. Hey, I just got an email from this speaker named Stephen Hill. Why does that name sound so familiar? Actually, he's our keynote speaker at CTC's first Healthy Youth Summit on Saturday, March 19th. Oh, wow. That's awesome. His story sounds really empowering. So who's invited to the Healthy Youth Summit again? It's for kids in 6th through 12th grade, and we'll have free food, giveaways, and raffles. It's from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. on the 19th at Downingtown West High School. And this is all free? Yep, all free. Okay, so tell me more about this speaker. He'll be sharing his story of how he was a promising student-athlete that used drugs and alcohol and ended up barely graduating from high school, dropping out of numerous colleges, and experiencing other challenges before getting help. Today, Stephen helps youth to be resilient by maximizing their strengths, taking what they think are weaknesses or negative experiences and turning them into life lessons for personal growth. Okay, so how can kids sign up to attend? They can go to our website at dtownctc.org and click the upcoming events tab at the top of the page. They will see a link to register there. And I'll be sure to add that link to the show notes too so people can click there as well. Great, we hope to see you at our Healthy Youth Summit on March 19th. Okay, and we're back. 
what we'd like to start talking about, and what I think is always helpful with podcasts um, that our listeners will will ask us, um, is like, what are things to look for, whatever topic we're talking about, and then also sort of some take action steps and things you can do. So I think the very first question then would be, what should parents look for as possible red flags that perhaps they might maybe should be a little bit you know, concerned about um, with their child's use of technology, video games, social media, and if they're seeing these uh, red flags or there's something about it that they're concerned about, what would the uh, next steps be for them? Right, absolutely. So um, there are a couple of red flags, right, things that parents can look out for when it comes to the use of technology and video games. Uh, And I'm going to just outline actually some of the red flags that are highlighted by the American Psychiatric Association. And these are actually criteria for gaming disorder in the DSM-5. And I think it's important to outline them because um, of the criteria, these are really signs and symptoms that we're looking for. Now, just because we see some of these signs doesn't indicate immediately that you know one of them this that the child would have um, something problematic occurring in their life it's just things to be aware of now if we see all of them and they're consistent over time then that might be an opportunity to have a conversation with uh, someone else if you feel that an expert's needed but before even getting to that step you know just having a conversation with your children first is is uh very helpful. So according to the American Psychiatric Association for gaming to develop into something problematic and fully um, you know, disordered, the first warning sign would be a preoccupation. So this is a preoccupation with just gaming where gaming is taking over all facets of their lives and any other parts that used to, any other parts of their lives like uh, hobbies or extracurricular activities um, or, you know, engaging with loved ones has completely uh, been pushed aside and they're just focused primarily on gaming. Another warning sign would be a withdrawal. And this is withdrawal symptoms. So it's looking like increased irritability or uh, lack of sleep or anger when gaming or other technology use devices are taken away, uh, an increase of tolerance over time. So this can look like needing to play longer and longer to get the same desired effect. So when we're talking about those serotonin and dopamine boosts um, that we, that we receive from engaging in screen usage, Um, This would look like building that tolerance again over time. So maybe going from playing um, a bit a day to playing a lot a day or, you know, most of the day. Um, Unsuccessfully being able to reduce the gaming. So if your child says, I'm going to um, reduce the amount of time I spent gaming every day to just half an hour, Uh, and they're unable to do that, but over time, so not just one or two days or a week, right? We're talking about months of being unable to reduce this gaming, um, even with the assistance from a parent, then that's something to be aware of. And a loss of interest in other 
hobbies or activities or people um, continuing to use despite consequences. So if you have placed some limits and uh, your child, let's say, is um, breaking those limits and they continue to use technology or video games outside of the time frame in which you allowed them to and you said well as a consequence now you do not have any screen time for tomorrow or have any screen time for the next couple of days whatever level of consequence you deem is most appropriate for your for your child and your family um, and they still continue to use despite these consequences that can be a red flag now deception is also one that I most often see. So this is lying to parents um, or even to friends or family members who ask how much time they're spent gaming, um, if they are gaming, what games they're engaging with, or if you know they're using screens, again, the amount of time, or um, if they're engaging the behavior at all. So they might lie or deceive about it. And often what I've seen is that, you know, parents might put limits where they take the gaming device away and uh, shut down the Wi-Fi, change the password, um, and children find a way. They set up a wireless router with their phones. They figure out the password. They plug or unplug in the router again, and now the password that has been changed is reset to the default password, which is listed in the instruction manual, which is sitting next to <laughs> next to the wireless router. So that's usually one of the very first warning signs because unlike the others where it's a bit more observational and it can be subjective, if someone's deceiving you and you discover that, especially if they are, you know, your child or a loved one, um, then it's a bit more, um, you become a bit more alarmed and aware that this, this could be a problem, right? Um, using games to escape is another red flag. Now, of course, you know, watching tech, uh, content online or using technology very often, the behavior for adults and it's similar for children is a form of escapism, right? We're watching these videos to escape some unwanted or negative uh, emotions or even just to um, try to tap into that serotonin and dopamine and elicit some, you know, uh, escapism from long, hard days at work. Um, or, you know, busy deadlines or, or just, you know, stress from life in general. So this is a behavior we tend to see with everyone, but this is, again, looking at it to a, to a degree of where they're escaping from answering everyday questions, from engaging in chores or activities that they often found some enjoyment in before, um, and that games are primarily just uh, their, their way of coping with life. So it's developed almost into this maladaptive coping strategy that that level of escapism. Um, and one of the last red flags, as far as aligning them with the criteria for gaming disorder and uh, problematic technology use is that they've jeopardized their relationships due to gaming or due to technology overuse. So this looks like um, you know, losing a relationship with a friend um, for older children who perhaps have jobs, right? So for adolescents, this can look like getting in trouble at work for um, gaming or for using, you know, social media technology. Maybe they were written up 
or they were given a verbal warning and this continues over time um, or in school as well, right? So perhaps their uh, grades are beginning to fall because they're spending less time sleeping. If they are engaging the behavior at night during a time when they know their parents can't supervise them or monitor them, um, and now their grades are failing and they also are sleeping less, which is impacting their development as children. Just listening to that list. <laughs> Make me a little concerned, Dr. Diaz Morel. Thinking of, thinking of some people in my house getting a little concerned. Um, so, but it's good. It's good. And I'll link all that up in the show notes too, just to have as a, so you can, everyone can go see, you know, have that as a reference too. Cause I think it's good to keep in mind. And I think it's also something that you have to be intentional of keeping in mind because again, it's, it creeps in so easily culturally and societally that, again, anywhere you go, everyone's on their phones of all ages or tablets. So it's, it's very difficult to discern, you know, is this normal usage or is this something that I should be concerned about? So I think that's really helpful. Um, Absolutely. And if I could just also add, um, for anyone who you know, is curious about learning more for themselves, for their children, for a loved one. Uh, we do have free assessments on Reboot and Recover's website. And um, the assessments look at video gaming usage, they look at internet usage, look at social media usage, they look at online toxicity or cyberbullying usage, and they also look at gambling. Um, so those are free, they're confidential, they're screening tools. They can be used to start a conversation as well. Uh, where you can you know, take the screening tool you know, with your child, for example, and then just have some follow-up conversations about, you know, well, what made you say maybe instead of yes or no to this response? Or what made you, you know, respond this certain way? What, what, what are your feelings about that? I will link that tool too, specifically in the show notes too, to click on. Um, and I will probably maybe take it myself and with some other people that live with my house. Um, so what would you say, you know, now that we kind of know what to look out for, what are some things, even if you're a parent with adolescents and kids who already have phones, if you're a parent of kids who are young, little, don't have phones, don't have access to their own devices yet, or maybe just do have shared devices, those types of things. Um, what are some things that parents can do now to um, help support their kids to have a positive relationship with their devices and games and social media presence or accounts and have a balance between the need to use screens, right? Because again, you probably have to use them for school and things like that and work, um, but also not feel so chained to them and so tied to them. Right. So I think one of the most important things that parents can do to help ensure that their children can have a positive relationship with screens and games is to help model some of that behavior as well. Right. Especially with younger children, as we know, social learning theory would support that, you know, children very often um, model what they see in their environment. So if they are viewing their parents as constantly engaged with their smartphones, um, then their uh, notion of what it's what is the expectation or, you know, what can they get away with when they start uh, testing limits around two or even younger now um, is going to be skewed because they had that model, right? They have their primary caregivers, their parents who are using screens uh, in a way that is consistent. 
So modeling that behavior is really important. And it's difficult because that also is asking parents to examine their behavior when it comes to that. Um, and a lot of the times there are, you know, some of those uh, coping mechanisms as to why we use phones, but there's also defense mechanisms. People will say, well, you know, it might be work. Um, it might be important or, you know, I deserve this. I've earned this uh, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of justifying their behavior. But at the end of the day, if we want to help our children grow with this positive relationship, really modeling that behavior when we're around them is important. And if we break down our work days, right, really there's 24 hours in a day. So we've got more or less, let's say eight hours that are supposed to be quiet time or sleep, <laughs> right? Um, we've got eight hours that we're working. And between the eight hours of working for those who don't work from home or who are commuting, Let's say we have maybe two hours of commute. And then, so what's left after that? We have six hours, right? Six hours of the day, six hours where you have an opportunity every day to spend with your child, to not um, model a, a behavior that is going to perhaps um, have them think it's okay to spend those six hours in front of a screen, right? Just even taking an hour out of those six hours to, to set up a screen-free time, like having a dinner um, or having an activity you're engaging with. I have a lot of parents who have board games for older children um, or who do arts and crafts or who engage in creativity, um, uh, do poems, do crossword puzzles, right? A number of different activities where you just have that one hour out of those six, that's really all the time that we have with family, especially during the weekdays. And that's considering if you don't have other extracurricular activities, right? You don't sports and all these other things that children are involved with and also homework time, where of course they will be on their screens completing homework because right. that is the world that we live in. Um, and so aside from, from setting aside that time, modeling the behavior, I think the other really important thing parents can do is having a conversation with their children about their screen usage and approaching it in a way that is non-judgmental, um, but just to understand a bit more about what the motivation is for their children to engage in these screens, right? Well, what video are you watching? Is this someone that you normally follow on YouTube if they're watching YouTube kids, for example? What do you like about it? You know, and of course, for younger children, it might be a little bit more difficult to verbalize that. So you just kind of repeat and say, oh, is that a similar toy that you have or something that you um, that you like? Uh, you know, is it funny when they do that? That makes you, does it make you laugh? How do you, you know, so starting to kind of uh, unpack a little more of that purpose and it's going to change the conversation tone will change depending on the maturity of the of the child and their understanding but um, being involved is also a good way to help make sure that not only will your children have this positive relationship with technology but that what they are consuming mm -hmm. the content they're consuming is appropriate for their age appropriate for the development and something that'll help them have this positive relationship and can you talk about um, 
ages for phones because I think, you know, when we were prepping for this, we had talked about that a little bit um, because and going even back to the beginning when you were, you know, sharing had the ages at which kids would start, you know, at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, getting social media accounts. So what is the average age that kids get phones? But also what do, you know, you or doctors or, you know, the medical community, pediatricians and things recommend is, is the appropriate age for getting phones? So in the U.S., we do have some market research on the average age of uh, when children receive cell phones. So the average age of when a children is a child is given a cell phone is six years old in the U.S. Six years old. Um, a however, smartphone. A smartphone. A, a smartphone. Okay. Yeah, exactly. However, uh, that can also vary significantly by region because this is just a national average. So if we're talking about um, really the general age that parents purchase a phone for their children, it's about 10 years old. Yeah, so around 10 years old is the average age. As far as brain development, is there an age? I've seen things like the wait until eight, like, like eighth grade, Um, as something which would put kids at around like 13, 14 Mm -hmm. years old. Is, is there truth to that or science behind that? I'm assuming. There is, um, science behind that mainly it has to do with our psychosocial development. Um, so around that age, that's like middle to late childhood. Right. And, um, our brain at that point uh, is bringing together information from different senses and different sources. It's helping us to build a conceptual understanding across social, emotional, and cognitive contexts. And so having a pocket computer, right? Having mm-hmm. all of the world's knowledge at your mm. fingertips um, at that age is often something that can, you know, impact. And of course we talked about how social media can impact uh, children at that age. So um, setting up ways to ensure that your child's cell phone is being used appropriately, especially when it comes to the internet is important for parents. There are a number of different apps, none in particular that I would you know, um, recommend over the other. I always just suggest parents to do some research to be able to put in place some of the parental apps that exist. Um, I always recommend if it's a, a phone and they have a shared account on let's say their Apple Pay or their Google uh, Play account that they password protect it because a lot of apps that children can download when it comes to games uh, will have downloadable content or in-app purchases. And without thinking of the repercussions of what that would look like, right? They might just press yes to purchase Mm -hmm. it because they're not seeing the actual money. And I've had a lot of parents call me with bills of upwards of $2,000 from just one day of, and, and a few, you know, not even that much time has passed. It might've right. been 30, 45 minutes of gameplay right. with these apps. Um, so at the end of the day, a lot of these apps are, you know, their businesses, their companies. And so that's part of their, their products. And they, um, so, you know, putting, putting that in place is helpful, not just for safety, also for finances (laughs) and, you know, again, to help have a conversation about this, um, with children and, you know, aside from the psychological 
and um, you know, medical reasons as to why 10 years old is a more appropriate age. A lot of parents find that their rationale for giving a cell phone to their children is that, uh, you know, it's a safety thing, right? They want to be able to track where their children is at. And a lot of these parental apps do allow for that. Or you can, you know, there's the phones themselves also now just have tracking on family plans. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to be able to get in contact with their children and text them or call them if needed and vice versa. If there was an emergency, if something were to happen mm-hmm. in the school or at home or in life, right? Um, and so that's, you know, a lot of that justification plays into why children receive smartphones at younger and younger ages. Mm -hmm. However, there are a variety of phones that exist that, um, serve for the purposes of just text and phone calls and don't have, you know, and some basic internet functions, Mm -hmm. um, and don't have as much for parents to have to be worried about or have to monitor and manage if um, they were to buy those instead of, you know, a fully functioning um, smartphone. Right. So that would be like the Gab phone I've heard about. Yes. I think the Gab phone is, is one of the better ones that they have. And there's a variety of them now. So, um, you know, especially for parents of older children. So even early adolescents or middle adolescents that um, are in the part of their life where they were, socializing is very important, but also, um, you know, uh, having the right shoes or the right clothes, right? Exactly. Things, those kind of things mm-hmm. are important. The Gab has some phones that look like iPhones, uh-huh. right? They look like Android phones, but they don't have all the same features. Yep. So that way that FOMO that these kids, that the, this age of children might feel, um, not so much <laughs> because they mm-hmm. have phones that have similar, uh, look, to the iPhones. In preparing for this, I couldn't help but think, you know, we're talking about kids use, but in a lot of our conversations today, we talked about, you know, our own use, adult use, parent use. And so it just made me think about reflecting on, you know, our own relationships with technology. And so could you just talk about kind of what you are seeing with kids that are being raised by parents who have smartphones? and maybe in this constant state of distraction, whether they realize it or not, whether they might have a demanding job that kind of, you know, because again, the pandemic has done that a lot, has blurred those lines between home and work and those types of things. But, you know, I, I just, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. So there is um, a story that aligns with that. And so I'd like to share the story with a brief poem. Uh, so the story begins that after dinner, there was a teacher who started checking on the homework that was done by her students. And her husband is strolling around with a smartphone in his hand, playing his favorite game. And upon checking the last homework assignment, the teacher starts to cry. And her husband notices that she's crying and asks, why are you crying? What happened? And she responded, yesterday, I gave a homework assignment to my first grade students to write a poem on something that they wish for. Um, And the husband says, okay, but why are you crying? And she says, well, here's what one of my students wrote. The student wrote, my wish is to become a smartphone. My parents love their smartphones very much. They care about the smartphone so much that sometimes 
they forget to care about me. When my father comes home from work tired, he has time for his smartphone, but not for me. When my parents are doing some important work and the smartphone rings, they will attend the phone within a single ring. But when I ring for them, not for me, even when I'm crying. They play games on their smartphone, but not with me. And when they're talking to someone on their phone, they don't listen to me, even if I'm trying to tell them something important. So my wish is to become a smartphone. It's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. And it also makes me like, I'm like sweating and it makes me want to throw up. Like it just, yeah. it's just, it's Well, just... I've seen that reaction. I've seen, you know, the, I, I mean, you've seen that happen. Pick up the phone, you know, right away. I, I mean, that's, oh gosh, that's pretty powerful. Things have changed so much and technology is not going away anytime soon. It's only going to continue to be involved in our lives. And, you know, it, I think it's important to know that technology within itself is not something bad. It has brought about so many wonderful revelations in our lives. It gives us the capacity to connect and communicate with others who, um, you know, might be near or far to us. And that aspect of it is really something that children are going to be growing up with, right? They, they know that they have the ability to communicate and connect with others on a human level in a virtual setting. So what's, what's important for parents now is just to find some of that balance between what our increasing use of technology is going to look like for connecting or entertaining or escaping online to what it's going to look like in the home, in a physical setting with some time away from technology so that we are ensuring that that parent-child attachment, that that communication and connection for um, human bonding is going to outlast some of that connection and feeling that we can also feel online, right? They're just two different places. So if you think for a second, um, if you've ever received a text message from someone you don't know, right? Or if you're um, working on a project, let's say, and you're communicating with someone just via email, sometimes the messages that we read can be misconstrued, right? We can misinterpret it. Mm -hmm. But then if you sit down in a room with that same person and talk to them mm -hmm. and they can repeat exactly what was said in the text or, you know, what was said in the email, but you have nonverbal cues, you have the intonation of their voice, you have some physical cues that even if you were communicating through a screen in person, it just feels different. Right. That connection, the communication feels different. It's there. You can, you know, feel tension more um, than if it were to happen online. And so nurturing that um, connection in a physical setting and engaging with family, friends, loved one in a physical setting is also a really important part of who we are as humans and for, you know, our own 
um, our own understanding of the world that we live in and our own experiences. So it really comes down to being intentional with it, as with everything else, which I think is the theme of, and that, and I also just want to be careful, you know, full disclosure, I'm using screen time as a tool to record this podcast with my, you know, pre-K kid upstairs. So, and that's the thing is to not make anyone feel uh, guilty about using these things as tools or for entertainment and things, but they're really, as they continue to creep in more and more, just to be cognizant and really be intentional on, like you said, the motivation behind them and, and the ways in which we're using them. Absolutely. Yes. Finding the intention, setting the intention um, and, you know, following through with that when you're using technology is, is one of the best ways for parents, for children, for families to uh, manage their screen time every day and you know from from now on out even when things change you know very often with parents that it can be a power struggle with their children um with allowing them you know what's too much screen time what's not enough screen time we know we have these guidelines but every household might look different and then also uh they're struggling because the children might say well my parent my, my friend's parents let them use their device so much more than you do or you know they might say well everyone else is doing this right so they have that comparison yes um and so now the parents are not just struggling with setting these limits for children and the added burden of having to model the behavior but they also have the social comparison that children are seeing uh from others but at the end of the day, you know, we're, when, when we're talking to parents and we're like, all right, what is the effort behind all of this? Why are we, you know, fighting so much in this power struggle? And some days, you know, they might um, allow more screen time than others. Mm-hmm. What it really boils down to is an understanding of time. These devices mm-hmm. are designed to keep us engaged, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're designed to keep so engaged because they know about the neuroscience, because they have these um, you know, reinforcement behaviors that are uh, a part of social media that are part of the technology. But we're giving our time to these devices. And the one resource in our lives that we cannot get back is time. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to use that because mm-hmm. that, that I am that parent. I am the parent that has the hard, that gets into that argument with one of my kids. Of All my friends get to do what... Which, of course, you know, you take with a grain of salt because I'm sure that not all, quote unquote, all of your friends have unlimited screen time. I find that hard to be true. But (laughs) but it's right. But it's but that is that is an argument in our household. And it's just and I'm like, it's to protect your brain. This is the limit. That's what it is. And I just have to be okay that they don't have to like it. They can be upset about it, but we can find something else to do. And like, hey, let's go outside and like play basketball or ride your bike or do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good point. You can't get your time back and that's how they mm-hmm. suck you in with all the algorithms mm-hmm. and everything else. You're not, you don't pay for any of these things. That's the other thing. You don't pay for any of these things, but you, your eyeballs, you're being, it's your, the currency is your attention and your mm-hmm. eyeballs. Yes. And one last story I want to share when I used to do a phone dependency lesson is when my, my son was much younger. This was years, a couple years ago. He was maybe like, hmm, I don't know, five or six. And talk about kids telling truth and setting you straight. I go, I'm sitting there on Instagram. He had come out of his room after he went to bed. 
you know, the usual dance of like, oh, I have to get a sip of water. I have to go to the bathroom. Comes out and I'm sitting on the couch for my allotted phone time that I set aside that's after bedtime for myself on Instagram. He comes over my shoulder. Mommy, who's that lady? Who are you looking at? And it's a celebrity and her kids. It's just like live stories or whatever. I'm like, oh, it's this actress or whatever. She's just funny and she's a mom and I just like to follow her and see what she does. Mommy, do this is what my son says. Mom, do we know them? No. No, we do not know them. I mean, talk about setting you straight. We don't know them. Nope. Don't know them. Don't know those kids. Never going to meet them. They don't know we exist. They don't know you. They have no idea I exist, that we know them. Never going to talk to them ever. So why am I spending my time watching what they are doing with their lives? Like, and then it just kind of was that moment of like, Mm -hmm. like, it's just one of those things. Like, nope, don't know them. Why am I following and spending my time? That resource I cannot get back seeing what they're doing. Like, what is it? What does it matter? Yeah, it's great. Love that story. So if you had one thing, because we always end with our take action tips. So if, if after all of this, this was filled with so much information and our show notes will have so much information in them, but, um, and links to resources. But if you had to give parents one tip of tip of what they could be doing now after listening to this episode, maybe something for parents of littles and something for parents of middle schoolers and high schoolers, what would you tell them to do today? One simple thing. One simple thing that parents of children of all ages can do today is to take a few minutes out of your day and connect with your child. Um, whether that is sitting down after school uh, and having a snack and connecting with them, whether it's co-viewing some content that they are enjoying, um, or whether it's just asking them about how they're feeling today or to share something they've learned or to learn something with them. Just take some time out of your day to connect with your loved ones, with your children, um, and ensure that, uh, you know, you are growing with them. Thank you. And I think that also, uh, if we could just share, if you could share um, how folks can reach out to you and how they, you know, can find your nonprofit organization and maybe some other helpful resources because a, a number of our listeners you know, sort of like to go back and also do some more research and maybe have some more uh, hands-on information and, and materials that they could share with their their family. Absolutely. So on our website, on Rebootin Recovers website, there is a link for resources. And in that resource link, we have um, information on um technology overuse on setting appropriate limits. We have a family media plan link. So for those who might think, oh, you know, I don't have a family media plan now, but maybe I'd like to incorporate one in my family's home or start talking about what that might look like um, or, you know, want to calculate media time. All of those resources are available on our website under our resource section. So I encourage you to look there. Um, And if you're not sure if this is something that's problematic at all, I encourage you also to take our free online assessments and they can help you to determine if the behavior that you're seeing with either gaming, general internet use, or social media may or may not be problematic in your house. 
Doctor, I like the I like the family media uh, plan. I mean, we have fire escape plans. We have all kinds of plans in our home, right? So it makes sense. That's a good point to to have a conversation about about safely use just like any other issue or safety concern or whatever we might have in our home. I really like that idea of a family media plan and maybe it's one that I'm going to print out and that's, look at. That's why I just literally just wrote that I, down. It's like, Oh, there it is. That's what I'm going to be doing. So it's thought, in addition to like setting our little kitty cat timer to 30 minutes for your screen time, yeah. like, you know, just looking at that because then bringing alongside with them too, like just to talk exactly. about it, not just like, here's your limit. That's it. And throwing it at them. Here's 30 minutes when the timer goes off, shut it down to have a plan together plan. that we're all into. Oh I my really gosh. like that. Thank you. That's and, great. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Diaz Morel, this has given me lots of things to, to reflect on personally um, and lots of things to go and find and use and do and click on um, at your website to access resources. So I loved this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you everyone for going on this journey, for thinking about what's best for your families, for your lives, especially during a time when technology has become such a big part of who we are. Um, And I'd just like you all to know that even just considering what role technology might have in your child today, it's very apparent that you are caring, loving parents. And um, I commend you for your efforts in uh, learning more and doing what's best for each of your families. So thank Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you everyone for listening and joining us today. Um, And please be sure to check the show notes here for links to everything that we talked about today and other resources. And also make sure that you click on subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to us so that you get our new episodes as soon as they come out every other Monday. So we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.